This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Science, exercise, nutrition, health, energy, passion. One year, no beer. This is the One Year No Beer podcast, where you will find all the latest tips, tricks, and hacks for a way to live better. Hi guys, it's Jen here on the One Year No Beer podcast. Our guest today, Patrick Sweeney, is an expert in the subject of fear, hence his nickname, the Fear Guru. He teaches audiences how to break through their limits. Some fears you can face head on, and some show up unexpectedly to shake you to the core. When Patrick was told he had leukemia, he faced fear head on and learned the biggest life secrets to success. Now he inspires audiences with the neuroscience of fear and how it can be a competitive advantage. He shows why we need to find more fear in our life, and it's fascinating. In 2018, Patrick won the world's toughest bicycle race, the Race Across America, almost 20 years after he finished second place in the Olympic rowing trials. He's founded four tech companies while creating eight patents and raising $50 million. Patrick has leveraged fear as fuel for peak performance, as well as creating an inspiring life of passion, happiness, and fulfillment. He has also written a book, Fear is Fuel, and it was released early February this year, and it's already made its number five on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. I think you're going to like this one. Without further ado, Patrick Sweeney. Welcome, Patrick Sweeney. Jen, great to see you. It's been, it's been since Tahoe, right? Since we've seen each other. Great, great to yeah. see you. It's so good to see you. And um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. And I have been thinking about you a lot recently because you are also known as the fear guru. Um, and we are living in times these days where there's a lot of fear. Right now, we're living in the, the world of coronavirus. Um, and so uh, we we thought, you know, what better person to get onto our podcast and give us, you know, some insight to all this and the man himself, the fear guru. Um, so thank you so much for agreeing to do this. We have so many questions for you. I'm going to pick your brains, but I also want to hear, you know, let you lead a little bit because we live in times of fear now. I mean, it's unprecedented what's going on right now. You know, Jen, it's uh, it, it's really interesting from a, a neurological perspective what's happening as well, and we can get into you know talking about it. Um, it's it's such a great opportunity. I think that's the first piece of advice or information that I want everyone. Thank you all for tuning in and taking the time out of your busy day. But this is a this is a great opportunity. It may not seem like it, and it definitely may not feel like it. But I can guarantee you it is. And if I can share some of the neuroscience, I'm, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but uh, the six years that I've spent researching for my book, Fear is Fuel, has allowed me to sit in labs with three dozen of the world's top neuroscientists. And I learned a lot. And uh, I'm really pleased to be able to share that with the, with the whole audience, Jen. That's that's amazing. I mean, it, it's uh, this is what we need right now, because what we we, we have... Um, what we get uh, at home right now, because we are now locked in our homes, locked in our confined little spaces, and all we have is what our, our phones, our tablets, our um, our TVs, and we got uh, and and what the, the information that we get about the Corona um, virus is the unprecedented fire stoked by the media, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the, so I'll, I'll give you the, the quick version of what's happening with our brain, because I think that's so important. The first thing that everyone should know out there is our brains were uh, designed to adapt. So they've adapted to adapt. They are our, our brain has evolved to evolve. So we can change. We've got something called neuroplasticity, which means our brains can change at any age. We can go from being a complete coward to uh, having uh, courage as your superpower, which is what happened to me because of leukemia and some other things. But we can go from being really sad and angry to being happy and fulfilled. So all these things can change, 
you have to believe that and you have to be willing to investigate that. So that's the, the first step in this, because what's happening now is everything that you've done in your past that's been useful, your brain retains. And those are called our prior beliefs. They get stored in our subconscious database and they're used primarily for one thing, and that's to predict outcomes. Because our brain is one big prediction engine. When we get into a scenario, we try to predict the outcome. When we walk in the house and we go to flip the switch on the wall, we've already predicted that there's a 95% chance the light will come on, there's a 5% chance it won't. If it doesn't come on, then we've predicted there's an 80% chance the bulb uh, is broken or there's a 20% chance the circuit breaker's gone, right? So we're constantly doing these predictions what happens, though, is when we can't predict an outcome, and that means something's novel, and you've heard novel coronavirus, right? Novel just means new and unknown, but what that means from a neurological perspective is we can't make a prediction. It'd be like unscrewing that light bulb and a snake dropping out, right? You'd all of a sudden be terrified because you didn't predict that outcome, and that's where fear comes from. So that's that's called your body produces what's called free energy when you can't when you can't uh, predict an outcome because your prior beliefs don't have that in their category. So that's what's happening across the world now with all this fear and anxiety that people are feeling. It's because we can't predict an outcome. We don't know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and so uh, one thing I'm very curious about is that can we pass fear from one person to another? If you see what oh, I mean? Be, be, totally contagious. Yeah. Right, fear, contagious. fear is way more contagious than the coronavirus. I <laughs> yes. guarantee you that. Okay. Because that's and, what I feel. Even, even when I was pretty chilled out and then you leave and then you, you know, I went to the supermarket yesterday and I can feel how people were fearful. And, and yeah. I, I felt after a while, I was also fearful. I was like, I was wearing a scarf because it was cold, but the next thing you know, I was kind of pushing it up to my your face. face and everything because, else. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Because everyone else is kind of doing it. So, so it, it, it is contagious. It's it's definitely contagious, and it's contagious from a from a physiological perspective. So when we get scared, our body produces a fear cocktail. We produce cortisol and dopamine and DHEA. And when we feel afraid, when we feel our heart pounding or butterflies in our stomach, we all have certain things. I call those in the book um, fear tells. Once you find out what your tells are. You know when your fear center, the, the limbic system, there's a little gland, the base of our brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala handles the fight, flight, or freeze response. That's all it does. But the really messed up thing, Jen, is it's running a two million year old piece of software. So that used to be our early warning system for survival. So if something rustled in the leaves and it might be a saber-toothed tiger, we'd run. And so collectively, when we produce these enzymes and, and hormones that make that feeling of fear that, that our brain often interprets as fear because we're running that two million year old piece of software, then we also can pick up when other people are secreting those same things. So we can, you've, you've heard in, in movies or books, the smell of fear. There's, there's literally a smell or sensor or, and also wireless communication and brain waves that we can feel from other people. And so, so it's definitely contagious. On the same hand, so is courage. So right. most people know that, that we've got this center uh, for fear called the amygdala. A lot of people have probably heard of, of that gland, the amygdala, because it handles the fight, flight, or freeze response. We also have a center of courage, which almost nobody's heard of, called the SGACC, subgenial anterior cingulate cortex which is probably why no one's heard of it. Well, it's too they, they to say. Make it, make it easier for us to remember. <laughs> exactly. So the SGACC is a center of courage, but here's the really messed up thing that happens with people's lives. And this, this has to do with fear. It has to do with addiction. It has to do um, you know, with, de with depression as well. When we're born, actually before we're born, in the third trimester, the amygdala, that fear gland is fully developed. So when we come out of the womb, we have the ability to fight, flight, or freeze. So we've got that survival instinct, that early warning systems built in, and that's how we've evolved. And that is our only defense until we're probably in our mid to late teens. So for, for the first 15 to 20 years of our life, we defaulted to a defense, and that was fight, flight, or freeze. It's not until our early 20s 
that we develop the fully develop the prefrontal cortex. It starts developing when we're teens, but it doesn't finish until we're in our early 20s. And that's where the courage center is. So let's say for, for 18 years, we've defaulted to defense. Our, our, the, the habit we have, what we've been trained to do is fear, is a fear response when anything goes wrong. We, it takes a lot of work to train that courage center to activate instead of that. But once you do it, it's kind of like walking a path in the snow. And the first time you're post-holing and it's tough. The next time you're following someone's footsteps. The next time it's kind of more and more. And then eventually those neurons that you fire together will end up wiring together. So courage is something that you can practice and becomes easier and easier. And it's also something that's contagious as well. So that's the one we need to be focusing on. That's really interesting. I, that's something yeah. that I, that is, this is amazing. You're blowing my mind right now. Uh, I never thought of that. That's something that we actually have to cut our practice and be courageous. And, and yeah. you know, and especially in times like this, we that, that's what we should, if we feel a bit courageous, we should really try and um, just get that out there, um, yeah. you know. Uh, the, the, so because we default to defense, our default is fear, right? It's just like you said, when you're out for a run and you wave at people and they're, you know, kind of right. doing that. The, the, the default is to defense. But yeah. all the potential is in the present. So the oh. potential for happiness, for success, to live this great life, to have amazing relationships comes from being present and being courageous and, and being vulnerable. And yeah. part of that is how we create memories. And then part of that is just understanding when we feel those fear changes, those fear tells, as I call them in the book, then we've got to figure out, okay, is there something, is there a real threat, first of all? And 99% of the time, the answer is no, right, in the modern world. The biggest threats that we have tend to be emotional fears. So that we have three types of fears. We have physical fears, we have emotional fears, and we have uh, instinctual fears. Physical fears are like falling off a cliff or something. Uh, um, uh, instinctual fears are like fear of snakes. You know, there aren't even any snakes in Ireland, but people are terrified of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, and, and, but it's the emotional feels, fears that really mess with people's mind. So it's, it's rejection from the tribe. It's fear of abandonment. It's fear of failure. Because of that, that amygdala is programmed to make sure we stay with the tribe because that's where safety was. If we got rejected from the tribe or abandoned or, or anything like that, we'd get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. And so right. we're, that's our programming of our mind. So we, we definitely have to believe, we have to understand that all of the assumptions, all of our prior beliefs, this is, kind of, this is the really fucked up part, Jen. It, all of our prior beliefs were put in there by somebody else. So right. everything, the, the script that we're reading for our life initially was, was written by somebody else because we didn't choose where we were born. We didn't choose the color of our skin. We didn't choose the yeah. language we speak or languages. We didn't yeah. choose how many brothers and sisters we have. But all of that is what we base our predictions on. So if we have the assumption that we can change that, which we can, you have to believe that you're basing your life on assumptions that other people initially put in there. So our subconscious was all fueled by other people. Now, we can change that if we want, but we have to first recognize, okay, all these assumptions I have about the world were mostly put in there by someone else, by my teachers, by my parents, by my siblings while your brain was developing. So it, it takes a lot of courage to first make that admission and then say that you're accountable for your own life. And that's, right. that's where, where a lot of people are starting to realize now, and that's what I'm trying to help people with, with the book and, you know, my live cast on Instagram and that's how, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the, I mean, the, what you're saying here, this just thinking about our community, uh, our one in, in within one year, no beer. I mean, for someone who's choosing not to drink, there's a lot of fear about what people are going to think, you know, yeah, fear, yeah. fear of the society or, or the fear of the cravings or fear of not having that crutch, which so many people have developed, like alcohol being a crutch for them, yeah. um, or just feeling being a lot alone or an outcast, being bored, being boring. Yeah. I mean, what would you say to someone who is feeling the fear around, you know, taking a break of alcohol? So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'll tell you my personal story uh, with alcohol first, because I think it, it went into part of a lifestyle that almost killed me. 
Um, yeah, I was going to say, I'm really sorry. I think we got so excited about yeah. jumping into fear. <laughs> it's that easy we, to do we, now. We, yeah, I know. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to take anything away from your incredible story. I mean, we, we yeah. say, I, I gave some of the information in the uh, in the bio so people have a, a grip of who you are. But tell me a little bit more about us. Never mind. We, we'll get to the alcohol but tell people about your incredible story that which has brought to brought you to where you are right now well well and that's and and the alcohol alcohol is a huge part of that so we can tie it together and um, you know i was uh grew up son of first generation irish immigrants uh in boston in the blue collar area we had no money first first kid in my family to go to college but uh, I had an abusive grandfather, an abusive uncle. Uh, I was getting bullied a lot. We moved around because my dad was, you know, trying to get always a, a better and a bigger job and that type of thing. And so uh, every time we moved, you know, I'd get picked on and I never had any self-esteem. I was always thinking that, that I had to be someone else, that I had to be the rich kid or that I had to be the kid in high school whose dad got in the car. And I, I never felt good enough on my own. And so um, I always had this, this uh, shell that I was trying to build, like this facade of who I was. And first I started with athletics. And I thought if I became a great athlete, I'll get respect, I'll, I'll get self-love, I'll really appreciate who I am. And so I spent six years training for the Olympics and was second in the Olympic trials uh, in rowing in the single skull. One of the few Americans to race the World Cup in the single skull, and I raced three years in the World Cup. And that should have been, when I found out that I raced the World Cup, I was terrified. I had I had the biggest panic attack, and, and I was literally trembling on the end of the phone. My, my coach is calling me, super excited. He's like, I can't believe it. You know, we're going to Europe to race. And I was terrified of flying. So my, my whole life, I saw a plane crash when I was a kid on the news, and and I was I was petrified to fly. I mean, I missed out on spring break trips. I missed out on family reunions. I missed out on exchange programs and college and everything else. And and so when I found out I was going to race the World Cup, one of the greatest days of my life was one of the most terrifying because it meant mm-hmm. I had to fly to to Europe to race. You know, uh, throughout Europe for the World Cup. And so to get on a plane, that was seven or eight beers for sure. Just to just so you know, take uh, off the edge. Get me on the plane. Get you on the plane. <laughs> oh yeah. So so, um, and then you know after the Olympics, uh, I felt like I had courage, but only on the water. That was the only place I felt sort of in control, and I didn't know why. So I went back to business school, and I said I'm going to go to top ten business school, and I've got one goal and one goal only, and that's forty by forty. I'm going to make myself a net worth of $40 million by the time I'm 40 years old. Screw everything else. And so that's what I, that's what I set out to do. And I started um, a series of technology companies, raised about $50 million in venture capital, uh, took the first one from, uh, uh, you know, kind of the dot-com bubble through 9-11, which is very similar to what's going on now, and then sold it and then started another one. And as I started the next one, I was, and I didn't realize that at the time what the feeling was, Jen, but I was, I was petrified of everything. Like I, I, I had this amazing company in the field of radio frequency identification, and we had the most um, cutting edge technology. We had this facility that had Department of Defense level clearance that looked like something out of a James Bond movie with scanners and you know crazy stuff. We had the best employees. We won the biggest contract. So I should have been having the time of my life. But because I was afraid all the time, I was constantly in this state of anxiety and fear. Like I was afraid my my CTO was going to quit. I was afraid our customers would go find someone new. I was afraid, you know, this new guy was going to go start his own company. I was afraid the board was, you know, going to think I was an imposter. All these all these fears all the time were what what it did is it it kept that fear cocktail that I talk about the DHDA the adrenaline the cortisol which is the main stress hormone that was always trickling through my body and so this is really common especially you know in in the one year no beer commu- community is we had this cortisol trickling through our body and it feels really uncomfortable right it doesn't it doesn't feel good and a lot of people myself included at the time don't know what it is it just feels something just feels bad. 
So the way I dealt with it was drinking. I'd have right. six or I seven beers. I think a lot beers. of people are the same. Yeah. 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 I do, I do that every night and I'd have twice that on the weekends. And so I drank six or seven beers on a Monday at a venture capital event or a networking event, or I'd take some of our guys out to, you know, to the local pub and whatever. And so I'd go get home at like midnight or one o'clock. And then I'd feel guilty about drinking and treating my body like that, that, that whole Irish Catholic guilt thing. So, so I'd wake up at five in the morning to go to the gym. And that was my normal routine, like four or five hours of teeth grinding sleep, really, you know, tossing and turning, waking up, feeling bad, going to the gym. And then, you know, two cups of coffee, two cups of Starbucks, three Diet Cokes. That would, that would get me through to the afternoon. And then I'd start on the cocktails at, you know, five or six in the end of the day. I, I literally had, you know, as CEO of this tech company, I could do whatever I wanted. I literally had a little refrigerator in my office stocked with Guinness, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. and, and it would just sit there. And, and so, you know, one morning I got to the gym and I started doing uh, pull-ups. My arm was just, was just on fire. And I thought, wow, that's really strange. I must have pulled a muscle or a tendon or something. And uh, I should have gone to the doctor, but I didn't. You can probably guess why. Mm-hmm. I was afraid, mm-hmm. <laughs> scared of what he was going to tell fair, me. Fair. Yeah. And uh, second day I woke up and it was red and angry. Thing looked like a Christmas stocking. And I still didn't go. And then the third day I, I could barely, you know, I, I could barely get out of bed, couldn't move the arm. I went in there and the doctor said, went to the doctor's office, the local uh, GP, and he said, you know, it looks like a staph infection. We see this with the guys who go to the gym a lot. I'm going to give you some antibiotics. The nurse will call you back in the afternoon. Well, they said, you know, we'll take this blood test before you go just to be on the safe side. It's, it's no big deal. Well, it was a really big deal. And it wasn't the nurse that called me back. It was the doctor. And he said, look, we don't know what's going on with you, but we're going to send you up to Johns Hopkins because you have no immune system. And uh, it's the best hospital in the world. We'll get you up to Baltimore, to Hopkins. So 24 hours later, I'm sitting in this room in Hopkins. My one-year-old daughter was at her grandparents. My wife's at the end of the bed, who just, you know, white as a ghost, not knowing what the hell is going on. And uh, Dr. McDevitt comes in and he said, look, we've got great doctors, great technology. We're going to do everything we can, but I need to ask you if your affairs are in order. Wow. And I I didn't tell you, my wife was six months pregnant. Oh, my goodness. And this seemingly came out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, you were. Yes, seemingly out of nowhere. But in reality, it was just the way I'd been treating my body for, for, you know, what what ended up being five or six years after after the Olympics and after grad school and everything else. And uh, Mm. uh, and, and so it was it was that that, you know, put me in a place where I was in Hopkins looking back and I looked back at my life and I thought I had so many amazing opportunities and I just, I wasted them all because I was afraid to get on a plane. I was afraid to ask someone for their business. I was afraid to go after, you know, I had these amazing opportunities that, that I could have taken such better advantage if I was just, if I was courageous, if I would have just been myself and been happy with myself and instead of trying to build up this, this facade, you know, of, of being the tough, strong guy and telling everyone at work, everything's fine. I mean, I was driving a $150,000 Hummer, wearing $10,000 custom suits and I'm running a, you know, and I'm running a $15 million startup like Gordon Gecko on wall street. <laughs> so, right. so on, on the surface, everything looks like, you know, yeah, on the surface that. it had to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, trying to be tough, trying to be, and, and I wasn't. And when I got to Hopkins, I thought, you know, I, I'm going to die. And mm-hmm. I just wasted everything. And I had this, this real sense of shame um, and regret. And, and I thought, you know, is the memory my daughter going to have of her dad was the guy who's too afraid to get on a plane, take her to Disney World or take her to Paris mm-hmm. or take her to, to you know, Ireland or wherever. And I swore if I got out, um, I was going to overcome that fear. And um, not to give away the story, but I lived. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I was biting my nails there. Oh no, I mean, wow! I mean, what an incredible, what an incredible um, story. It was story. I mean, what an incredible life, and like to come to that point and just that that you found your zest. You're like, no, that's it. That that well, it, car- it, you were carrot. You're like gonna make. You're gonna make it through. <laughs> that was it. And, and the the amazing thing, Jen, was when I chose. Courage. So I got out of the hospital and it was a, a day like today here in Boston. It was, you know, uh, 40 degrees and rainy or three degrees and rainy. And, and uh, I got out and I would have been in such a hurry normally to fix the business, to get back to the company. To, and I, I stopped out and I, I've told the story a million times. There was a little leaf in a puddle. And this is in a real gray area of Baltimore where Hopkins is. And I stopped and I looked and I thought, wow, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Like, it's just so great to be outside. I'm, I'm outside again, seeing this puddle. Excuse me. And it was amazing. And I, I, you know, I had to be sequestered. This is another thing, right? Uh, this is not unfamiliar because it took six or eight weeks for my immune system to build back up and I couldn't leave my house. So it's, it's very similar to what people are feeling now. I had this opportunity to kind of plan out what I wanted my life to be now because I had a second chance. And as soon as I got out of the, you know, as soon as I could start seeing people and going out in public, I went to the local airport and I signed up for flying lessons. And I said, I'm wow. going to overcome this fear of flying. And, and this is the whole reason I wrote the book, Jen, is I, the first two lessons, I was terrified. I mean, I, I peed like four times uh, before <laughs> we even got out of the plane. It was like the whole thing was just just as frightening as could be. But then after the third or fourth lesson, I fell in love with flying. And I absolutely mm. loved it. And I got my private pilot's license. I got my instrument rating. I got my commercial pilot's license. I'm never going to fly for a living, but I want to keep learning. And now I compete in aerobatics, flying a stunt plane. So oh, wow. the, the thing that would have absolutely terrified me the most 15 years ago <laughs> is one of my biggest sources of joy and fulfillment and excitement. So I wondered how that could happen in my brain and started talking to neuroscientists. And then I wondered how many other people that I meet every day, how many of them don't realize that all their dreams are on the other side of fear? Everything right. that, that they want and that they'll enjoy and that will give them growth and happiness and a real sense of joy and, and contribution all on the other side of fear. So yeah. when when it comes to drinking, you know, if you're afraid that that you won't fit in, you're afraid that you're not going to be fun out at the pub, you're afraid that people are going to, you know, wonder why you're doing, you know, doing that and other people on. All all you have to do is have this faith that on the other side of all those fears is really your dream life and is everything that you want. And the more you start wiring to that courage center and you stop uh, you start ignoring that the fear center. The more you wire there, the more that this is going to become a habit. And, and courage has this halo effect over your whole life. Yeah, and and, and that that's something what we we try and tell our members or try to to tell people who approach us. And we say they're like, well, this this this, but I feel fine. I'm I'm so happy with this. And some people just feel genuinely content. But then I always so I always say, what if? What yeah. if you could feel even more amazing? Whatever you can, what if, what if you can rediscover? That's what happened to me when I cut my alcohol out. I rediscovered my love for uh, being an athlete. And, you know, I started competing and all this stuff. And I'm like, now I've got the zest for life. And um, yeah. when I started doing that, I become, I became curious with other stuff. Like, what else can I do? What else can I do? Yeah. And, exactly. and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of exactly. like it opens up the, the, the contagious almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind yeah. of go, oh, I, I want, I want more of this, and it's so yummy because it doesn't matter what age you are. People think, oh, well, I, I was one of them who felt. Well, you know, I've missed it. You know, I could have done great things. I could have become an awesome athlete. I could have done cool things. Well, that's it for me now. But why? And then something happened. And I was like, no, you know what? I'm going to go out and do it now. There's no such thing as as doing anything being too late. Like, what were your wildest dreams? Go for it. Don't be scared of what, what the outcome might be. Just go for it, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's one of those things where, where those prior beliefs that I talked about, there's so many, there's so many upper limits put in there. Like in, in my family in, in, you know, Irish Boston, it was, you're going to become a cop or a priest. 
And you know, maybe if, maybe a fireman if you're not smart enough to be a be a cop, right? And that was sort of the upper limit of of where you're going to be, and that was the expectation, and that gets put into your your script, right? That story mm-hmm. that someone else wrote for you is is those upper limits, and that's the same thing. Oh no no, geez, my dad had arthritis when he was sixty. I could never go out and run the Mont Blanc marathon at at 60 or 65 years old that's you know i missed that opportunity and and yet you see guys out running the mount blanc marathon who are in their 80s right right? yeah so it's it's only upper limits that people put in on themselves that they think that and you're so right after alcohol has such a uh derisive effect on on not just your health in general like i found you know with the the leukemia and everything else but on your mental capacity as well, because you you start numbing out your dopamine receptors, your cannabinoid receptors, all these things that are responsible for pleasure. But yeah. as soon as you get out, and, and you probably found this, Jen, when you started competing and everything else, once you go past 45 or 50 minutes, that's when you start producing the, the uh, runner's high, as a lot of people mm. tell it. So if you can work out for 45 or 50 minutes, what you'll start to find is you know, th- this starts to feel really good. This is a yeah. really amazing sensation. And, and it's unlike anything you can get with, you know, with alcohol or drugs, because you feel good that you're doing good for your body and your soul. It, it gives you that same kind of sense of feeling. And then what happens, and I tell this to my kids all the time, and I've seen it first time, firsthand so many times, we're the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So if we're hanging around with people who are at the pub who have this victim mentality, who say that it's too late to do this, they're stuck in their dead end job, they can't wait for the weekend, you know, the, the way they're dealing with this dead end job is drinking because they're too scared to go out and, and change and do something else because they're afraid of the unknown of what will happen. Mm-hmm. If those are the people you're surrounding yourself with, then that's that's where you're going to stay. If you surround yourself with with people like Jen and Rory, you know, who are Spartans, they eat great, you know, um, great diets, they have a great lifestyle, they're challenging themselves to do bigger and better things, whether it's business, or whether it's athletics, or whether it's adventures or travel, doesn't matter, but you start hanging out with those people, and then your life and what you're writing in your mind starts to change that way. So that's probably one of the biggest benefits of, of you know, getting out of that lifestyle that people might be stuck in. Yeah, and um, you touched something on something you talked about getting a kid. So and about and you, you're very active and proactive with with your kids. You done some incredibles. You went, uh, you took your eleven year old son up to Mount Mount El- Elvis. I'm sorry, what was the Elvis? Name? Oh yeah, he's been everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's my favorite climbing partner. <laughs> I, love, I love that. And just, you, so now you know you live through that fear when you you know you obviously. So what would you say? You, your fear was something that was created during your because of the bullying and being you know yeah. abused from your from your family members and all that. So that's something that is is deeply rooted. But we we can change that. We we can oh, break that. It's but absolutely. but it's hard 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 yes. But you, we is. can change that. Um, and so what you're doing now is you're making sure that your kids are like fear not fearful of anything. You know, go and grab it and um, and. What I, I guess what I'm trying to want to ask is what what can we do for our kids? Let's say small things like if they're scared of a little bit of a spider or whatever. Because you always say, no, go ahead. You know, you don't want to chuck a spider at them because you know. Ah! Yeah. And then also, what if you've scared your child? Let's say if you've raised your voice and yelled at them because you got upset. Because I have this fear that maybe I'm. Maybe I've created something within them that because I've been obviously I've been learning a lot about fear lately and reading up on, on your stuff and and so I've been like what if I've done something you know not not something awful but something it might not have to be awful for a child for them to feel it quite severe so yeah. it could be me raising my voice or shouting and stuff what what if I've created that fear in them can, can we can we do something about that? Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. And in fact, when I started doing the neuroscience research uh, six years ago, I, I found out some things that dramatically changed the way that I raised my kids. And and uh, in fact, I get this, you know, I probably do 25 or 30 speeches a year to, to companies, you know, uh, around the globe from eBay to, to Motorola to MIT. And, uh, and, 
unfailing at every one of those things someone asks about kids, about raising kids. So I'm actually going to be writing a fear is fuel for kids. So, oh, yay! So, yeah, so, so oh, there'll be something awesome. coming up because it's so interesting. Remember I said the amygdala, our fear yeah. center, is fully developed at birth? We don't have the prefrontal cortex, that, that kind of adult supervision, fully developed until we're in our early 20s. Mm-hmm. So the only way I knew how to parent was my parents, right? Or maybe, you know, a coach or, or something like that. Or there are lessons that I had that populated my prior beliefs. So that's what I did. And, and I can remember, this is, I think, eight years ago or so, my uh, youngest son was five years old and we're rock climbing in, uh, uh, in France. And I had the rope set up uh, on what's called a top rope. So the rope went up to the top, came down, and then he'd climb and I'd take the rope up. And he did a great job. He, he flew up and he loved the climbing. He got up to the top and, and he looked down and I said, okay, Declan, let go. Just sit back and I'll lower you down. He said, like, I can't, dad. I'm going to, I'm going to die. I'm going to fall. And I said, Declan, you know, you're on, you're on the system. It's all good. I can't, I can't. I'm going to die. Declan, get down right now or you're not getting any ice cream for dessert. Right? No, dad, I'm going to die. Declan, if you don't get down here, I'm never taking you climbing again. Right? So the, the typical... Irish Catholic, I was, I, I mean, I, I looked and felt like my father, right? Screaming at the top of my lungs. It's all that you knew, right? Right. But, but what I was doing was, was fueling his fear response. So the only right. thing he had was the ability to fight, flight, or freeze, right? He mm-hmm. only had that amygdala. And so when I was fighting, he was just fighting more. And it, yeah. was, it was a fight until somebody loses the fight, loses the fight, and then it's trauma. Whoever yeah. the loser was has trauma. For a you know forty year old adult, it didn't mean anything. It was you know a little bit of trauma, kind of ruined our day of climbing. That was it. For a six year old kid, big trauma, right? Like he's yeah. just he's up here about to die, and his dad's screaming at him when he's going to die, right? So right. The, the whole thing. So what you have to realize as a parent is we're gonna we need to be a surrogate prefrontal cortex for our kids. Right. So they don't have that prefrontal cortex yet. So we have to be it for them. And we have to understand that they aren't wired to be able to think through things when they're in an emotionally charged state. And this is up to 16, 17 years old before they even start to get the capability to do this. So he was emotionally charged. So, you know, once I started finding this out, the next time we're rock climbing, he's up at the top. Dad, I can't let go. I'm going to die. Well, Dad, what would happen if you just let go with one hand? No, 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 I can't. The rope will die. The rope will break. I'll die. Dad, just let go with one hand. You still got a good hold with the other. What happened? Uh, nothing. Okay. Now, now let go with the other hand just for a second, but then grab back on real quick. And he, you know, you, it starts to talk right. through what happens being that prefrontal cortex Instead of getting mad and, and engaging, you know, your amygdala, your fear center. So that's probably the biggest thing you can do is that understand wow. that when they're emotionally charged, what's called hot cognition, there's any emotion involved, the only, their default is to defense. They've got to go to that amygdala and it's going to be a fight, flight, or freeze response. That's it. That's all. So if you understand that and you start yelling at them, you've got to realize that that they're going to see that as a fight and they're either going to fight or they're freeze or they're, or they'll flee. So that's probably, I think the biggest thing we can do for kids. The other thing, the, the second thing I think that's really important is we have to teach them not to have a a victim mentality. And I've got a, you know, uh, I've got a great frame of reference from this woman named Diana Chapman that I use all the time called the drama triangle, which, which describes how, how people are either uh, victims or they're not, that they're, they're in charge of their life. And that's a really important thing to teach kids. Yeah. Yeah, th- th- that's, I can see, I can see the difference in, in our two daughters. I can, I can see what one has that victim and one has that in charge. Like they're two very different people, um, two little creatures. And you want to do, you know, your best and you, you want to, but it's so hard as a parent. So I mean, I'm so happy that you're writing a book because I'll, I'll be, I'll, 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 I'll be, I'll be your what do you call it? Proofreader. You just yeah, send it you over go. as soon as you got it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, because I mean, that's probably what people always ask. Because as a parent, you're always wondering, and and fear is one of these things that we know. We know we only know what our our parents and our peer taught us. That's right. So that's there's how no, we, you know. There's no handbook. No, none. 
So, so like you said, I, I can totally relate what you're saying. If you don't let go, we're never coming to do this again. It's like, yeah, that's yeah. not the approach you need. You need to, yeah. how do you, yeah. so that, I'll, I'll take that tip. I'm, 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 I'm oh, yeah, big, big. So um, all of this, I mean, you. Well, you let me, what, it, yeah. Jen, while I'm thinking of it, I, let me hit the, um, I had something from, I did this on a Spartan Zoom the other day. I was explaining this to people if I can find my, uh, yeah. So, um, if you think of the victim mindset as, yes. as having, uh, if you're a victim and, mm. and, you know, I've hired hundreds of people in, in my startups over the years, and I would, I would say 75 to 80% of the people in the world are victims, right? Yeah. So, uh, so, oh, Jenna, I'm sorry, I would have been, I, I would have been uh, here on time, but the traffic was really bad. You know, I would have won that account, but that client was an asshole. I would have gotten that promotion, but that, right. that boss was, he doesn't like me, right? So, so that's the victim mindset we hear all the time. And if you're a victim, there's always <laughs> got to be a villain, right? And, right? and so if there's a villain, then the only way you get out of it, there's always someone to blame it on. The only way you can get out of it is if you have a hero. Right. So, right. oh, I need a hero to come save me because I can't do this myself. So, teaching kids the accountability that, uh, and that's this is what I was doing this morning on the Spartan oh, thing, okay. is that if you go from a victim to being a creator, then you think everything I do in my life, I'm making on my own. And when you change from that, from, from being a victim to a creator, these people who were villains before, oh no, sorry, over here, the people who were villains before are now challengers. Right. They aren't bad. There's someone who's there to make you better, to make you figure things out, to help you learn something. And if you get stuck and you have trouble, you don't need a hero. You need a coach because everyone needs a coach. They're not going to get in the boat and row for you. They're just going to tell you a different technique. So if you switch from that victim mindset, which is that, hey, this this world, this life is happening to me. And all of a sudden you Mm -hmm. switch from that victim mindset to a creator mindset then life is happening by you. You become the author of your own life. And that's such a critical lesson to teach kids. It's scary, right? Because they want someone oftentimes to take control of their life. And too many parents, and this is why suicide rates are so high, too many parents take way too much control of their kid's life, bringing them from piano lessons to soccer practice to, uh, you know, uh, extra study class or whatever, and the kids never have any free space to learn on their own and figure things out and get out of trouble all on their own, which they need to do to develop those neurons. So they count on having their their life has to have a hero in it, right? In right. that scenario. But if you can teach them to create their own life and that everyone there is a challenger instead of a villain, that hey, what can you learn from that guy? What did he teach you? How did how did that teacher, how did she make you better? You know, all that type of thing. Then it's a much different mindset. And that's, that's why I love doing big challenges with my kids, you know, climbing with my son or going right. out to Yosemite with my daughter or, you know, anything like that. Yeah. I mean, what you said that it's good. It's, I, I see, I, I don't like my kids to ha- be entertained all the time. Like I'm like, let yeah. them be bored. Like it's just, oh, I'm bored. Well, good. Go be bored. Yeah. Do something. Yeah. Yeah. Figure something yeah. out. Do it for yourself. But people are like, Oh, my kid, I don't want my kids to be bored. I need to entertain them all the time. No, you don't need to because that's they're learning. If you keep entertaining them, you get you get what you just described there. Yes, absolutely. And and not only that, so there's a lot of uh research on the neurological development. One, how bad screen time is, right? You know, and that's not a surprise to anyone, but two, how bad structured time is. Yeah. So time that is completely structured really hurts the development of the brain. And the other thing that hurts it, and and it's really difficult to convince people in the United States of this because they're so litigious. But the other thing that that really hurts the brain, especially for boys, is not having a coming of age um, uh, sort of ritual or trial. It's the same for girls, mm-hmm. but to a lesser extent, because boys need to know how to determine the difference between aggression and assertion being assertive versus being aggressive and normally that only ha- that only happens in a you know in a way where they actually have to get hurt you know where they end up getting hit mm. or punched and they realize okay well I didn't mean to be aggressive I was just trying to be assertive and and so it's right. a really difficult thing it's it's for sure from a, a fear perspective it's just as important for girls 
to have challenges and to have adventures and and to climb up a wall even when they're scared or to to stop and look at a spider even when they don't want to look at the spider right all those yeah, things yeah, are yeah. are super important but many parents and and probably more so in the UK and in the US are terrified to do something you know that might be seen as bad parenting the, the parents are afraid to yeah, you know, to do those things as well but yeah, the, the, we're always worried about looking bad. We we're, were doing something different. We, we need to stick yeah. to the rule book. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. Safety, safety, safety. That's it. Yeah. And and then so because of that, oh, and this is the last time. Oh, God, Jen, I hadn't thought about this in ages. This is the last time I was in London. Um, gosh, just before Christmas. I um, there was an ad on uh, on on a TV and it showed this dad and the son like on a backyard swing. And pushing right. it, and you hear this lovely music, and I thought, oh, it's not great, you know, guys out playing with his swing. And then they cut into the kitchen where the mom was inside the kitchen. The dad comes running in, like with this terrified look on his face, and he said, you know, call the call the ambulance service. Uh, Johnny's fallen off the swing, and and then they show like the ambulance showing up, and the son, you know, almost dying. And uh, and they're saying, oh, thank God we had Rooney's ambulance service to come in and help us out, or our son would have died from being on that swing. You're thinking, <laughs> my God, they're, they're preying on fear, right? Like they're, it's like yeah. politicians and marketers just go after these fears, and if we let them, right? If we let them, if we're victims, we let them write the script in our mm-hmm. life. That's going into our database, saying, holy shit, I can't, I can't let the kids play on the swing. Because that kid I saw in that commercial almost died, right? Yeah. And, and so right. that's how this database gets populated with all these negative images that really hurt, in, you know, uh, parents' psyche as well as the children's development too. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, and that's why we, we, it's so hard to to try and filter out what they're saying in the media, or not because if some some of it feels like they're trying to control how we feel, how trying to control how we react, because we are so easily led astray. Like you're yeah. saying, it's contagious. It kind of it kind of really kind of spreads. Yeah, but just having remember, I said the first thing we have to do, and this is dealing with the coronavirus, is having the awareness, right? Yeah. Being being aware of that and 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 believing that we have the capability to shape our mind, to write our story. If we just, if everyone listening today just takes that away, that look, you can change your mind. You can change the structure of your brain. And and oftentimes, you know, I I give a whole platform in the book based on the neuroscience, but I'll give two quick things now that anybody can do. If you feel, you know, if if you're in the grocery store or you're, you know, you're listening to something on TV or searching social media, and you start to feel that that change from fear, the first thing you should do is breathe. And the technique that I always teach is called a four by four, where you breathe in for a count of four, hold it for a count of four, let it out for a count of four, hold it out for a count of four, and then repeat that that four by four by four by four by four. What that does is it immediately starts to create what's called bigger heart rate variability. And that lets go of the grip that your amygdala has on your sympathetic nerve system. So just that breathing, and I recommend people practice it every day. So I have a morning routine I do, which is five different things in the morning. The first thing I do is I wake up with gratitude and I just thank God that I'm alive and I've got another great day. And you can, you know, just thank whoever you want, Buddha or Allah or God or the universe just for being alive and having some gratitude. Then I do about five minutes worth of breathing, just focusing on the breathing. And literally, studies have shown at Georgetown University that after three days of just focusing on breathing, your mind, the structure of your mind starts to change. So, so that can really help. That's the first thing. The second thing, and Jen, you hit it on all the time, and you're great at it too, by the way, is to smile. So there was a study at Emory University, which is one of my favorite studies to cite, where they had uh, a huge group of people. They divided in half, control group and, and another group, and they showed them all these horror movies. And while they showed them, they were scanning their brain and taking their cortisol. And what they wanted to test was the the old adage of Brin and Barrett. And so what they said was this control group is just going to watch it. We'll take their cortisol levels. We'll watch their brain scans. And now this other group, we want to get them to smile. 
but we don't want to tell them to smile because they might think of something happy and that might skew the results. So what we'll do is we'll give them a chopstick and we'll have them hold a chopstick in their mouth because that flexes the 42 muscles in your face without having to necessarily think about something happy. What they found was the group that had the chopstick in their mouth, 80% reduction in cortisol. Oh, just from smiling. So if you can do those things and, and you do it in the morning as a practice, right? You're, you're going to start to wire those neurons together that are going to create that, that connection to courage. Once you have that connection to courage, it becomes easier and easier to do it. And then when you start talking or you go to the store or someone calls you up and says, oh, you know, did you hear so-and-so got it? Then you just breathe and you smile and you'll immediately feel a change in your body. I love that. See, I... I, I am the crazy lady on in this town where we live because I go down to, to the shop and I'm like, hi, hi, hi. And, and yeah. like they, they look at you and they know don't look in the eye. And I'm like, go up to, well, I go safe distance, go up to yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the people who work in the store. I'm like, hey, how are you guys doing? And they get so happy and they smile. I, yeah. And so I, I feel like if I get a couple of people to smile every day, I've, I've got a good job. Uh, yeah. Usually they are bin men and everyone. I'm like waving at people and smiling. Because why not, right? Why not? Yeah. And, and now you have just proven that it's good. There's science, so there's, there's science behind it. Yeah, exactly. And you've I'm got a great not. smile. You have the greatest smile, right? So <laughs> walking into a store in Scotland, you must be able to light the place up. T- it's a tough crowd, Patrick. I yeah, you. yeah. But, I mean, but now I also know that if I'm having a, a rough day, I'll just get a chopstick. Yeah, I put the chopstick in your mouth. That's it. And then even, oh, even, see, even you can't, you can't so even keep a straight face now. <laughs> I will never fail. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what? So this is your mission in life now: inspiring others. You know, you've yeah. had an incredible journey. You've come through all. You have an incredible athlete. So my question is. You know, have you seen the movie Sliding Doors? With, uh, no, an old movie? no. Okay, old movie with Gwyneth Paltrow. You should check it out. It's interesting. It's like, you know, different scenarios. If life had happened this way or that way. Ah, okay. What if Sliding Doors is part of, um, what if the, uh, the the subway doors had, had you know, hadn't opened that you got on there? What, how would your life have? Got on, got off. Sliding Doors. It's very good. But yeah. so if you didn't become a world-class rower um, there in Boston, you know, what do you think? What was your plan? Um, did you have a backup plan or it was, you know? I did. So, so we were, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting story because, um, and this was all in, the, in, in creating the image, right, of someone who, who wasn't afraid and wasn't ashamed and everything else. And I've, I've worked with a lot of them since then, but... I was doing uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a long time, and I had a, a couple of friends from the Naval Academy, who the U.S. Naval Academy, who were training with me, and we were all at the Olympic Training Center together. And one of them said, hey, um, if, if I don't make it to the Olympic uh, training camp, then I'm going to go join the Navy SEALs. And he said, you should come with me. And I said, okay, Alden, that's what we'll do. And I said, I, we'll go, I'll sign up, I'll be a Navy SEAL, because they're the toughest baddest asses in the world and that's what yeah. I want to be nowhere near there now and so uh <laughs> so I made the um uh, you know I obviously made the the training center and he didn't and he went on to become a pretty famous Navy SEAL and have a great career and everything else so uh so yeah that's that's probably yeah. what I would have done and uh I'm not sure you know but the truth of the matter is Jen I wouldn't have I wouldn't change anything that I've gone through in my life you know I think my purpose and my mission has all come together to do this. And, you know, I do um, live calls, you know, I do all these public speeches and, and just seeing yesterday, someone did one of those, uh, you know, Instagram things with a quote from my book with some music behind it. And I have no idea who the person was. They just bought it. And I'm like, God, that's so amazing that, that, you know, my research and all the stuff that changed me is affecting people, you know, worldwide. And it's such a great feeling to be able to, you know, to have that kind of an impact. And if we all figure out what our purpose is, and, you know, for you guys, you've had a tremendous impact on so many lives, getting them, you know, to, to away from the stigma of beer. And me, you know, coming from an Irish family and still having tons of relatives in Ireland, the, the, you know, I couldn't have imagined this happening 
one year no beer happening even even 10 or 15 years ago. And now I've right. got you know, friends and relatives who are doing it. My wife's doing it and everything else. And it's just so, you guys have had such a huge impact too. It's a great feeling, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's amazing. And yes, your, your wife is doing and loving and thriving this in her challenge with One Year No Beer. I, I just love it. And so it's just nice to have people come. I mean, our, our, our audience, I was going to say, our audience um, who are listening, but our members are just the best members because not only are they, you know, they're, they're proud and they're smashing and they're going against everything that their family or what, what anyone is thinking. They've gone to the other side, if you like, you yeah. know, and they can feel the benefits of it. And a lot of people, a lot of them have, have gone through their 28 day, 90 day or 365 day challenge or two, some have gone to YMB, two years, no beer, but they stay within our community to help others and support others. Yeah, because so they, great. They feed from it. So they're not like, okay, that's me done. I'm off. They yeah. literally stay in the community and uh, they, they're there. They want to be, they want to give because that's kind of the way it's always been. The exchange of. The, the tribe you know we're, we're all flock yeah. people we like we you know it takes a village and all that um and our they, you know they're so strong and you know they're so encouraging of each other and and it's so lovely to see is to hear and and i love that your wife is loving our um community as well yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's no it's it's amazing it's i i wouldn't change anything in my life i've come overcome adversity and all that stuff um and like you said i i everything has shaped me into who I am today and so the important thing is not to worry not to fear not to fear what has been I think a lot of people worry too much of what has been and um you know oh I did I've I've made some mistakes haven't we all that's in the past that's in the past you know the one of the things uh there's a great study I reference in the book called the legacy study from Cornell University and what they did was they were trying to get the wisdom of the elders, right? You know, try and find whatever collective knowledge people had at the end of their life. So they interviewed thousands of people from the age of 72 to 109 years old. And they couldn't find anything in common except one thing. Nearly everyone wished they had spent less time worrying. Yeah. So, so um, the people are at the end of their life. And I totally felt that, you know, when I was dying... I thought, oh my God, you know, I worried about being on this plane. I worried about asking this girl out. I worried about, you know, applying to this school. I worried about all these things. And, you know, here I am going to die. And I didn't even try. I didn't, you know, I was so worried. I didn't even do it. What an idiot I was. Right. So, so if you, if you, one of the big things that people have difficulty doing, because again, it produces that free energy is, is relinquishing control. So especially in this time of coronavirus, I've done so many calls for companies now. One of the big things I say is, look, here's how you can boost your immune health. And I got uh, on I went Instagram live with a professor from immunology at Mount Sinai. She was great. She said, you know, this much vitamin C, this much zinc, uh, you know, this is your diet, this much sleep, uh, this kind of exercise. Boom. There's your immune system. Okay, now your purpose, figure out what you're doing, why you're doing right. it. If you're at home, let's figure out, you know, what you can change. Okay, your family, your house, you know, your finances, all these things you can control, right? So, yes. so focus on those. What the president does, what the governor does, what the border patrol between France and Switzerland do, you can't control that. So let it go. And oh, <laughs> there you go. Speak, speaking of border control. <laughs> So, so the the important thing is to realize what you can control. Yeah, yeah, and and let go of everything else because that's that's a you know uh, something you can't control. So you can't predict the outcome from a neurological perspective because you can't control it. So you're going to constantly be producing this free energy, this fear, this bad feeling. So if you realize, look, I'm doing everything I can in my control. I'm taking care of, you know, my morning routine. I'm doing taking care of my kids. I'm taking care of, you know, my work stuff. I'm exercising. I got everything. I'm I'm doing the best that I can. I'm going to be happy and enjoy the present. Yeah, uh, and and just what you um, I remember reading um, the the recommendations with the vitamins and stuff on this really good blog that you've done on your website. So guys. Oh, yeah. Go and check out um, Patrick's website, which is fearisfuel.com. And, no, 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 sorry, that's the that's the book website, Jen. The the blog oh, no, is yeah, blog is so PJ Sweeney. Okay, yeah. the blog. Okay, blog is PJ Sweeney. Sorry, blog yeah, yeah. is PJ Sweeney, and there's a really good um, 
there's some really good um, blog there about the coronavirus and what you can do to stay on top of things with your health and your fitness and the vitamins. Everything is in detail there because I wrote it all down. I'm like, I need to go again. <laughs> I went down to the pharmacy and they're like, we don't have this. We're out of this. So obviously, everyone is kind of going. Give yeah. me everything. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, so, um, but, but you guys should definitely read that blog because it's very relevant yeah. to what's going on right now and very helpful. Um, but speaking of it, so you, then for your book, you, I think you've got your book in, behind you. Can you do, bring yeah. it up to camera yeah. show? It's going to be backwards Excellent. here, right? Yeah. But, uh, no, no, fear is fuel. That's perfect. Fear is okay. fuel. Um, yeah. that's, that's Patrick's book. And like I said in the bio, it is, it's made up number five on the Wall Street Journal. My goodness. I know. I'm so excited. Congratulations. That must feel yeah. so amazing. Uh, I, thank this, you. Yeah. This, this is what you do, and you're you're the expert in. And I, I always love talking to you. Um, I love following you. You know, I follow you on, on Instagram. So, guys, who those who are on Instagram, check out his profile. Um, is that the um, the, the fear the, guru? The fear, the fear, the fear, no, the fear guru. guru. The, the fear, fear guru, guru on Instagram. Yep. The fear guru on Instagram, and then it, the book is also on Instagram. Fear is fuel. So yeah. anyone who loves Instagram, there's loads of Patrick on, on, on there. <laughs> there um, and then on LinkedIn, it's the fear guru. So there's lots, lots of places where you can check him out, especially now, because I know there's a lot of people out there who want to hear more from you and want to see more, read more, hear more. And Patrick is on a lot of podcasts. So, you know, you can't miss him to, you know, he's got a, he's, he's the best. He's the best in the game with, with the stuff we're talking about right now. Oh, it's Patrick, I mean, for, for so anything for our audience right now, you know, in this time. So a lot of our members they're coming to and they're going, you know, being alcohol free now. Some people, some people's comments outside of their uh, alcohol free circle go, "Well, this is the, you pick the worst time to be alcohol free," and we say this is the best time to be alcohol free to not yeah. feel the anxiety and stuff. So, um, but there's still a lot of members are, are are struggling and having to reset their their challenges and stuff. Any any encouraging words of wisdom for them before we end? Yeah, uh, you bet, Jen, for sure. So I think the breathing and the smiling, keep that in mind whenever you feel, start to feel that anxiety or feel that tension. The other thing that's really important to do is name your emotion. So when you're sitting here at night and whether it's on Facebook or watching the Tiger King or it doesn't matter what it is, when you're sitting there and you start to feel an emotion that you don't like, Stop for a second and name it and say, okay, that's anxiety, that's stress right. about my job, that's fear about me catching this disease, that's, that's um, uncertainty about not knowing what happens if I get sick. Any, any of those things, if you name that emotion and you recognize it and, and you know, it, it helps, of course, to talk to someone about it and about how you're feeling. But what you do when we form an emotion, we form two types of emotions. For everything that happens to us, we form what's called an episodic or semantic. That's just the facts. So it's uh, April 3rd. I'm talking to Jen. We're on uh, Zoom. You know, those are the facts. And then we form an emotional memory. And the emotional memory is, you know, we're having a fun time together. We're chatting. You know, it's really interesting conversation. I'm having fun. Those are the emotional memories. If you can't name what you're feeling, your brain has a more difficult time storing that memory. So if you're feeling something during the day and, and you aren't sure what it is, try and figure out what it is and then just say, okay, well, I'm feeling stress and how I might've dealt with that in the past, it's trying to cover it up with beer and, and so, or, you know, with alcohol. And so I'm not going to do that now. I'm going to name it, let my, let my brain consolidate that memory, take a few deep breaths and then go do something I like. I mean, the truth, the truth of the matter is, Jen, we won't have this opportunity ever again. Right. We won't have this solitude. We won't have this time with our family, with with, you know, people we love or we're together with. We have a great time to to figure out how we can come out of this in really good shape, because what's going to happen when this is all over, there's just going to be a waterfall of opportunity. There's going to be a ton of pent up demand. There's going to be people looking for jobs. There's going to be people who are hiring. So figure out how you can use this this solitude time, this time to really think and work things out and figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life and take advantage of this time we have now because we'll never get it back. No, we should see it as a gift. See it as a gift. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It's awkward at time, but see it as a gift. You know, it's, uh, 
that's what we're trying to do here as well. Like, look at all, all the opportunities that comes around it and just focus on those. Yeah. Patrick, exactly. you've been amazing on behalf of the whole yeah, OMB you. community. Uh, thank you so much for coming on with us today. And uh, guys, all the information I've given you, um, it'll be uh, also in the, in the, in the blog for the, um, for the podcast. You can find more info on Patrick, um, also known as the Fear Guru. Thank you so much, Patrick, for coming on. And, Jen, uh, right. it was a great pleasure. Thank you all for listening and give my best to Rory and the girls. I will do. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the One Year No Beer podcast. For a full list of episodes and to join in the challenge yourself, head on over to oneyearnobeer.com. Oneyearnobeer.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.